Welcome back to episode six of Lowest of the Low podcast. We're back this week after a long, well, not long, but a reasonably long break between episodes. We could not find the time again to nail each other down, but Chris has got a new job, so that might be reason why, or it could just be that I am very bad with timekeeping. And, yeah, and or you spent the last week playing golf in Dorset or whatever you were doing. So <laughs> I'm not doing very well either, playing very badly and losing a lot of balls. So hopefully this this podcast finally picks up and gets me some money, so I can buy some new balls and actually fund my not professional golfing life. That would be really really nice. But a uh, couple of topics to pick up on this week of recent news um we're moving away from the european super league or should i call it the rants of aaron and chris as it has been <laughs> the past couple of episodes um we have two uh, interesting topics to pick up this week uh so we talked at the end of last episode how we were going to talk about the local election results i think chris was hoping for a bit of a a different outcome to what actually happened and maybe a few seats turning yellow chris i think was well we'll get on to we'll get on to this i mean you've just completely outed my political persuasion there which yeah. i was trying to keep low key chris, so thank chris you is a, he's a strong smp supporter I, i'm a strong monster raving loony party uh, <laughs> i think it was count Binface personally but <laughs> um there we go uh but also i just have to give a shout out and you can't see this because obviously this is not recorded by video but Chris is currently wearing his Leicester, uh, is it a training shirt, that one? Yeah, I was going to say, you might say his Leicester shirt, or I'm going to say which one, I've got several thousand. Seven thousand. Uh, yeah, this is my he's, training. He's currently wearing the Leicester shirt, wearing the badge proudly on his chest following the FA Cup victory. Chris, I have to congratulate you. It's a very Thank painful you. moment when I, have to, as an Arsenal fan, when I have to congratulate someone else for winning the FA Cup. Given that we've won it most times, 14. <laughs> Leicester Leicester have finally got an FA Cup in the trophy cabinet and I have to say very well deserved and uh, very very likeable winners actually I have to say thank you just can I point out we've won more league cups than you so why are you necking can you let me have one thing no (laughs) (laughs) do you not know me come on (laughs) oh Christ Uh, anyway congratulations Chris um, I'm sure you'll be making your declaration of your application to the European Super League next year following that. Yeah, uh, I'm suddenly all for it now, <laughs> that we're invited. But let's talk about uh, the local election results. So, of course, it was the uh, council elections and the police and crime commissioner elections. Not that long ago. It's the big ones. The, the big, big ones. ones. Yeah, the huge ones. Not, the, not the general election, which means no. absolutely nothing. Um, Sideshow. We want to know who's in charge of our bin collection. <laughs> That's what's really important. So, Chris, as our uh, resident Wolf Blitzer, with your fantastic <laughs> wall of uh, battleground, well, I can't even call it battleground states, battleground councils. Uh, and talk unitary us, authorities. Talk us through your highlights of the election uh, can we call it a campaign? The COVID campaign? Well, well I guess, I mean, yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, it's actually, I mean, I'd say it's interesting. It's, it's, it was quite, in some ways, depressing. I think the narrative we've had so far has been a little bit um, unfair. So basically, obviously, I'm sure you've heard uh, the narrative has been that it was sort of a, a massive narrative victory for the Tories, which when you look at the raw figures, you know, it's hard to say that it wasn't a good night for the Tories. But... If you are, you know, of the progressive nature, there are some seeds 
of uh, of, of of recovery, should I say, in some areas. Um, but I think for me, what the overarching sort of result was of of the um, of the elections was the continued realignment of, of British politics and how we're seeing now in these northern, more working class towns a shift from Labour to Tory. Yet, and this is the caveat to that, in the home counties in particular in the London commuter belt, we're actually seeing a shift from the Tories, well, actually to Lib Dems and the Greens. So it's almost like the, the left is going to the, the traditional left wing areas are coming more right wing and vice versa. So it is interesting to see that that's still happening, even though we've now, well, I was going to say moved past Brexit. I don't think that's possible, but <laughs> in theory, moved past Brexit. But it's still happening. So that, that that for me is what stands out. I don't know. What did you think? Because I'm sure you paid some very close attention to the results. Very close. Uh, well, I mean, it's it's always interesting to see how people will vote, and I think particularly, well, I mean, it's it's, it's always slightly different in council elections, I think, and and local ones. Um, but obviously, there was quite a big gain. It seems doesn't thirteen thirteen councils does not seem like a significant gain. I think in the context of things, but I suppose it is um, when you look at it, especially when you look at the number of councillors as well that the Conservatives have added. Two hundred thirty-five um, were added, and Labour. I think you just have to look at the well, the dismal results that they had. Uh, eight councils lost, three hundred twenty-seven councillors lost. It's dismal reading for Labour supporters, isn't it? Um, I mean, to be honest, it's absolutely incredible from to think that Labour have been the opposition now for 11 years and they're still losing seats. It's almost unheard of for a governing party to still be picking up seats in any election 11 years into government. I mean, that is... I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm not supportive of the Conservative Party, but from a purely political um, standpoint, you've got to say it's impressive... That they are able to do this. I mean, because yeah, by the the rule of sort of any everything to do with politics and sophology, the Conservatives should be getting hammered at this stage of uh, their tenure in government. But somehow they keep finding new voters and and new seats. It's it, it is incredible. I yeah. I, I, I wonder. I wonder for you, from your perspective, uh, I, I don't want to out out you too much. Actually, I don't know if I'm allowed to say, actually, so maybe I won't go into that train of thought. <laughs> um, I want to know what your perspective is, though, and what you you sort of think might be the problems um, with Labour, because I think it is, from my perspective, more a, st- a story of Labour failure rather than uh, Tory success. I think the, yeah. the Tories... Go on, I'll let you finish and I'll get on. No, of course, yeah, I just... I almost feel like it's an internal civil war within Labour at the moment it doesn't seem to be sort of one collective narrative coming out and then there was stories about Angela Rayner was sacked and then she wasn't and then she'd been given the promotion and it just all doesn't really make sense to be honest and I honestly thought looking at obviously Jeremy Corbyn as a leader for Labour before was I think it's fair to say he's fairly left-wing um and Keir Starmer coming in I thought probably would appeal more to the mainstream um brand of of sort of late hard center uh, politics a bit more um but i i honestly thought there was going to be i thought this was going to have this real opposition to the conservatives and i thought it was going they were going to make a really big fight of it and it was going to be a really hard time 
to the Conservatives, especially with the way that the pandemic was going and the way that that was being handled and which all seems to sort of just gone onto the back burner now a bit. And with the vaccine obviously rolled out quite significantly across, that's obviously had made some contribution, I think, to that. To that. But there's been no change, really. I mean, I thought there would be, you know, they lost a lot of seats in the last election, don't get me wrong. And, I, you know, we haven't had that next election. I think it's a couple of years away, obviously. But they're in terrible shape, Labour. They are genuinely... It's like I see Keir Starmer come on the television and every time he comes on, it's like it reminds me of, of that old analogy of a duck when you don't see its legs below the water sort of kicking very quickly and thrashing around. But it's all very calm on the top. And I just don't really know what Labour is about anymore. I don't really understand it. And my concern is, I think a couple of years ago when Nick Clegg sort of first came in for the Lib Dems, I thought this is going to be a real resurgence of liberal politics. And then obviously he got into bed with the Conservatives and that all went to hell. Um, and ever since then, it's just been, I don't, I just don't understand. And this is not just uh, as a general point of politics. I don't understand how the lead is growing for the Conservatives. And I don't understand how Labour are getting worse when, like you said, they've been the opposition for 11 years and they are getting in a worse position than they were. I don't understand it. I, I personally think it's just an internal civil war and they, they, they need to get people on side, have one message. They're just singing from like different hymn, hymn sheets or something. It's just, it makes no sense to me at all. And I know, I know a lot of people obviously who vote for Labour, um, and I think the sort of message is is confused to them as well. I don't I don't know. I can't speak for them, um, but it just to me doesn't seem like it's on on point anymore. I, I, I watched, um, funnily enough, Mock of the Week uh, last night, and I can't remember which comedian it was, but somebody said that Labour needed to find a better policy than just not being the Tories, <laughs> which is uh, and. And that is almost what they rely. They were, I think, they almost went into these elections relying on that. And when you think about the context in which they have gone into these elections, like you said, massively botched handling of this pandemic as a whole. You know, you part the vaccine issue to one side, which I do think has actually been primarily the reason why the Tories have done well, is it has fallen very nicely in terms of timing with the success of the vaccine rollout. But you know, aside from vaccine, the, the pandemic handling has been poor, and the fact that we've had all these stories of Tory sleaze which have been really prominent up until you know up until polling day and still they gain seats over Labour that is damning on Labour because it's basically saying is yeah we know they can't handle us when handle the country or handle a big situation when we need them most yeah we know we can't trust them to do the honourable thing but we still think they're better at, at governing than you and that is that is a huge problem and and like I said I think there is probably you know what you were saying about the internal power struggle in, in Labour. There's definitely truth in that because, you know, when the Hartlepool by-election result was announced, which was obviously a big shock for, well, I think a big shock to anybody, everybody in the Labour Party. I think people outside the Labour Party could sort of see it coming. Um, you know, you see Labour lose Hartlepool of all places to the Tories, and you've got people on Twitter, Labour voters on Twitter, saying things like, "Well, this just shows that Labour needs to go to the left," and I'm thinking. How have you watched Labour lose Hartlepool (laughs) 
to the Conservative Party and conclude it's because they weren't left-wing enough. Why, if Labour weren't left-wing enough, would they go to the Tories? And it, I don't think... I, I think this is the, one of the issues that this sort of internal civil war in Labour is just not... It, it doesn't really do anything to sort of solve the the identity crisis Labour has because it's not actually about ideology at all. It's about... It's about values, I think, in terms of I don't think people trust them or I think there's a massive belief in, in their former heartlands that Labour aren't sort of on, on, on their side. They are a party of middle class metropolitan elites. And I know that is a, a phrase we sort of roll our eyes at. And I do think it has been massively weaponized and taken out of context by right wing pundits and, and politicians. But that is that's the perception. And I think that's what Labour needs to tackle. It's, it's irrelevant whether, you know, their fiscal policy is more left-wing or not. It really is about their identity as a party. And I don't think anybody in the party who matters is grasping that. I don't know. No, I completely agree with you. I just think it's so... It's just... It just seems to be one disaster after another, to be honest. It doesn't... I don't know. I don't know, what, I don't know how you solve it, though, to be honest. I mean, there was this real... I remember obviously back when they had not the last election, but the one before, and there was this real momentum behind Corbyn, particularly with young people. And there was this real feeling that they were going to get things done. And then there was that, obviously the go the conservatives lost the majority. Um, Theresa May had no power. Obviously the whole thing with Brexit was just going back and forth in parliament. And I think there was a general belief that Labour were going to come, come good. And then, they, and then it just, everything was it, nothing changed nothing progressed on it, it just seemed to remain you know and i i think the one thing about in politics especially with good government is that regardless of who you back in election campaigns it's important to have a strong opposition it's important to have someone who can challenge views in the government and things that perhaps you know and stand up for what their their party believes in I don't know. I don't know where they go from here, to be honest, Chris. I really don't understand. I mean, obviously, we're not here to heal the Labour Party or, you know, design an election strategy. That is not my job at all, or or anyone's job. Well, apart from the, obviously the party. It's, it's, it's presumably it's someone's job. Maybe it's no one's job. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they just need to come up with a few three-word slogans and it might be all right. But I don't know. I I think it would take. I honestly thought I thought Keir Starmer was the right person for Labour Party. I mean, obviously, I, I thought when they went with Ed Miliband over David Miliband, that was sort of where perhaps things went wrong. But I quite liked Ed Miliband. He seemed like a reasonably decent person, to be honest. And you know, it just—it's a long way from where it was, I think, and how that gets repaired. I don't know. I'm not sure. Can it be repaired? I don't know. To be honest with you, I think Labour has to now ask itself, you know, has to look at the election results and ask itself some tough questions. And I think, you know, primarily that question is going to be, where do we go in terms of positioning ourselves? Because like I was saying at the point, at the outset when we were talking about the election results, is they're losing ground in areas which are left-wing economically, but socially conservative and gaining a little, uh, well, losing less ground and gaining a little bit more ground in areas which are socially liberal but economically right-wing. Now, 
they're not winning seats in these areas. They're gaining votes in in the south and the southeast, and they still hold still a lot of seats in in these northern areas, which are a bit more left wing, economically conservative. But they're losing votes, so they have to now make a thing and make a decision. Basically, say, are we going to become a party that is more about being socially progressive and more economically moderate and try and win seats in this area where we don't really have any, or we're going to have to become more uh, conservative socially? And try and hold on to these seats where we're already strong. And yeah. to be honest with you, I think tactically, I think where the party's current heart lies, it wants to be a more moderate, economically moderate, socially progressive party. I think that's where its heart lies. Traditionally, it's more, as we can tell, left wing, more conservative socially. And I think it has to go back that way again because, you know, if you're looking at a route now for the conservatives to come out of, of government, for all progressive parties, and that includes, well, including the Lib Dems and the Greens, they need Labour to win seats in the North, and the Lib Dems and the Greens are far better placed to take votes in seats in the South than, than, than the Labour Party are. And to be honest with you, with Scotland now so strongly, and we've not even t- touched on the Scottish and Welsh results, which just shows how interesting these local council results have been in England, but because now that Scotland is such a stronghold for the SNP, and it's completely wiped Labour off of the electoral map up there, bar Edinburgh South. Um, there is no route to Labour majority government anymore without Scotland. So they are going to have to. I think they're going to have to form a lot. They're going to. I think a progressive alliance. And I know we talk about this a lot. People are interested in politics. This sort of informal or formal alliance between Labour, Lib Dem, and Green. It has to happen if we're serious about preventing Tory majorities because they are finding it way too easy to win enough seats. And it's not as if the votes for these parties aren't there. I mean, you can even look at these election results this time out. And, you know, it says, yeah, the Conservatives won the most councillors. But Labour, Lib Dem and Greens, if you added all the votes together, they'd be far ahead of the Conservative Party. But because it's so, because of our system, it allows the Conservative Party, because, like you mentioned before, UKIP are completely out of the race now. Uh, the Reform Party, as they're now going uh, going by, they've not really taken off. So, you know, all the all the Conservative vote, small C Conservative vote, is going to one party, whereas the Progressive vote is split between three in England and then five if you're talking in Great Britain. So, I think Labour is going to have to start asking some serious questions. One about, as I said earlier, its positioning, and also about its approach and attitude towards working with other smaller parties. But unfortunately, as much as I think that's what they should do, I have absolutely no confidence they would do that because there is still this belief, I think, in the Labour Party, which says that everyone should just fall into line behind them. And I, I just don't I don't see it personally. I, I wonder what I don't know. What, what do you think? What do you think? Is, well, I, was is gonna, I was just going to pick up on something you said on Scotland, because well, I know we did film a, a, a segment on Scotland a few weeks ago that that didn't we didn't air. Um, but is Scotland too far gone now? Is there a chance for, for I mean, you mean traditionally it's been quite red, Scotland. Um, but is there a way back for Labour in Scotland? Can they possibly win those seats at the next general election? I don't see it. Not enough. I mean, you look at, so you look at 2017 when you were talking about um, Jeremy Corbyn, who did quite well. Well, he did very well in that election. The Labour Party did well. Um and, and they won a few seats back from the from the SNP in Scotland. But even then, you know, we, the SNP are just so strong now that you, you can't overestimate that surge they had in 2015 following the independence referendum. They have 
you know, taken over government governance in Scotland, and they've they have done remarkably well there. They've they've been so effective at, at keeping their core vote, so effective at, at you know. I, I just think they are a better place as the main progressive party now in Scotland. You know, if you if you're in Scotland, you you want to vote for the biggest progressive party, you vote for the SNP. And if you're in Scotland, and you want to vote for the biggest unionist party. You vote for the Conservatives. So there, there's almost no space even now for Labour to fill any of those space to f- fill those two roles in Scotland because the SNP has been so successful. And as I've just checked now, even when Labour made that small recovery in 2017, they only got seven seats in Scotland, and that's with 40% of the vote nationally. Whereas we go back to 2010, they had 41. And we're talking about 30% of the vote. And it, there's, yeah, I think Scotland's lost to Labour now. I, I don't see them ever getting that back. And without Scotland, I don't see Labour forming a majority government on their own. So there's obviously, but this is slightly off topic, but there's been obviously rumblings of Scottish independence for a while. And Nicola Sturgeon said that it was a matter of when, not if there was another referendum. And also there was talk about a Welsh referendum as well. But is that something that's viable with such a support behind the SNP now? Would Labour have to offer that to, to Scottish voters in order to get a vote? I don't know. Would that, would that even work? I don't think that obviously they would never do that and it would never be a possibility. But how, so likely, how likely is independence, depending on how strong their, their grip on the country are now? Well, there's no way Labour can offer, in my opinion, can offer an independence referendum in Scotland because they will lose. I mean, it's an, it's an open goal then for the Tories in England to say, look, Labour wants to gamble the union away. I mean, they just it's political suicide for them. Um, in terms of how likely it is, um, well, you know, you look at the seat tally, there is an independent, pro-independence majority in the Scottish Parliament with the SNP and the Scottish Greens. Uh, so I'm like, I think it will be a matter of if not when we do have a... a um, another independence referendum but the key will be timing because you know if you're the SNP and you play your hand too early it's going to look like well hold on we're in the middle of a pandemic why are you prioritising an arbitrary uh, constitutional uh, crisis in the middle of a the deadliest uh, pandemic we've had for a generation and obviously we've got the economic ramifications to deal with as well but then also if the Westminster government looks at the result and, you know, there is, at least in terms of seats, a clear mandate for an independence referendum uh, version two. If, if the Tories continually refuse, it only strengthens the SNP's argument. So, and, and, you know, equally as well, if the SNP push ahead and try and get a second referendum and they lose it again, then that really is game over for them. There is, you know, the Brexit has given them a, a dog's life almost in terms of uh, the independence referendum. If they lose it a second time, and you know they they will be dead in the water. This independence uh, cause. So I think it is uh, inevitable we'll have another independence referendum. But I do think the sort of the struggle between the SNP and the Conservatives is when they have it, and that will help either side massively, depending on 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 who sort of wins that stalemate. But a point I did want to make is if you look at the. <laughs> I mean, they said there's an there is an independence pro independence majority in the Scottish Parliament, but you know by um, votes, um, it, it's it's very it's pretty much fifty fifty between independent pro independence parties and pro uh, unionist parties. So if if we're looking at that as a um, 
sort of a um, what's the word I'm looking for indicator of mm-hmm. where the public opinion is, then you know we're not really that far off where we've always been, which is about fifty fifty. So <laughs> it's a big gamble, I think, for for the SNP, but I think they will try and get it done. But yeah, and what about sales? I well, this, I. I really just don't really think there's any sort of appetite in Wales. I mean, there's obviously a minority of people that want it, but it's, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. That's Welsh listeners, tell us, let us know if you uh, if you want, if you want independence from <laughs> from the UK. If we want to know. Well, um, what about Cornish independence? Maybe in Canal did pick up an extra council. <laughs> well, I mean, it would probably have been a good idea for the Cornwall to declare independence based on the way that uh, it was the only place in, in Tier 1 at one point. I mean, yeah. that, that luxury is now gone. Um, tier now we've now got indoor pubs at the time of recording. That's quite nice. Um, I've not actually been indoors in a pub yet. There's a couple of other significant... Um, results in terms of elections the met london mayor elections being one with sadiq khan uh win that another term for him at the helm of london um i mean it was probably a little bit not really surprising that he won i don't think but it's probably slightly closer than you would have expected in terms of results with sean bailey coming second um i forget who goes sean green was it that came third in the greens sean berry oh, the great green was it sean green of the berry I've got, party i've got green on the brain um and then louisa porritt uh four for lib dens nico Milano. we have to give a shout out to you. independent <laughs> candidate two percent of the vote i mean that's not I bad say, i am so pleased he beat lawrence fox so <laughs> by, by over two thousand votes you'll be well nearly two thousand votes you'll be very pleased to hear i mean I, I, we're both subscribers of the nico defense league um <laughs> <laughs> well no i mean no surprises really in in london or manchester andy burnham held his um mayor, mayoral seat for the the second time um that wasn't really a surprise was it chris so he's i think locally as well he's, he's very popular so I, I i think the big surprise there were a few surprises in terms of uh mayoral elections but they didn't come in the sort of more high profile races i think if we Look at Cambridge here in Peterborough, fairly yeah. rural area. I mean, the big urban centres, Cambridge and Peterborough, aren't massively um, urbanised. But Labour winning, in in part, in well, a large part, due to the second preference votes from, from Lib Dem voters there. And that, again, puts credence to my Progressive Alliance um, theory and sort of advocacy, because, you know, without those votes, they wouldn't have got over the line. The Tories won on first preferences by over eight percentage points. But when you uh, allotted the Lib Dem preferences, 73% went to the Labour Party candidate. And now they control the mayorality there. So, you know, it it's definitely something that they want to be looking at. Um, there was another one, wasn't there? Ah, West of England. Dan Norris, who yes. Tim Bowles uh, in the West of England, Labour game there. Yeah. That was quite a big surprise. I can tell you what, though, actually, here's one that should send shivers down the spine of every Labour Party member. Tees Valley, and I know it was held by the Tories before this election, 73% of people in the Tees Valley voted for a Tory to be mayor. Ben That's prime Labour Party territory. That is huge. Yeah, big, big, well, not really a surprise, I don't think, but, I mean, a big increase on majority there for, for them. Um 
There was a couple of other things in the police and crime elections which we don't generally talk about. I mean, there was quite a few conservative gains. I actually uh, don't know who won my my police and crime commissioner election. I didn't even look. Well, I can tell you, Chris. Uh, actually, Do you I let have me know? right here. Would you like me to tell you Leicestershire? Yes. Uh, Rupert Matthews of the Conservatives won the seat. It was previously held by Willie Bark. Bark back. I don't know. I, I think it's back. Yeah. Willie Back. Um, <laughs> yeah, he didn't stand Willie this Beck. time, though. He didn't stand this time. Yeah, he time. didn't. You're right. He didn't stand. But Rupert Matthews, the new Leicestershire Police and Crown Commissioner. Uh, quite a few Conservative gains on here, really. I mean, Nottinghamshire, Conservative gain. Uh, Katie Bournehead, I see. I've met her. She's Sussex. Uh, she gave a speech at a conference I went to the other year. Uh, and a couple of other Sorry? Shout out to Katie there. Shout out to Katie. Uh, Andrew Snowden gained from Clive Grunshaw in Lancashire. Um, can I just make a slight, um, this is a bit spurious of me, but can I just point out the, the, the well, it's just Peak Tory, the name of the Peace, Police and Crime Commissioner for Norfolk. Giles Orpen Smelly. <laughs> I mean, if, if I had to come up with a more Tory name, I think I'd struggle. <laughs> Sorry, I found that rather, that tickled me slightly. Um, but yeah, I mean, pretty dismal night overall in summary for, for Labour. Um, and we wait to see what effects, long-term effects that has on uh, the political landscapes of the United Kingdom. But, Before we finish though, I do just want to make a small comment on the smaller parties because I do think often they do get sidetracked. I think, first of all, very good night for the Green Party. Yep. They've, they've gained over 100% of their seats, uh, so uh, an increase of over 100% there. And I think they, they are beginning to take that mantle of that uh, progressive protest party that the Lib Dems used to have pre-2010. Um, Lib Dems as well, to be fair, I was expecting losses for the Lib Dems. I think most people had had them down to lose around 100 seats. So the fact they've gained both councillors and councils coming off the back of a, a quite sharp drop in, in support from the last general election, I think they'll be pretty happy as well with their result. So it, it really is just a, a bad night for Labour. If you look at the main parties, everyone else is probably fairly pleased with their work. <laughs> now, good night for the independents as well. A, gain, a change of 39 seats in there. Well, yeah, well, that probably says everything you need to know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. People just not knowing which way to turn, I think, are the voting at the moment. But... If you did vote in the elections, which I hope you did, let us know why you voted that way if you would like to. Obviously, don't tell us if you don't want to, but uh, quite interested to see if you moved from one party to another. Did was anything that had happened in the recent news an effect in making you vote for that? But, yeah, very interesting that of election results. Um, and, well, I think we've covered it, but difficult night for Labour um, in conclusion. Um, moving on to our next... Uh, topic of discussion this week. Uh, oh, well, just... Yeah, couldn't have <laughs> couldn't have made this one up. I don't think uh, it's looking at the Israel Palestine conflict, which has been raging on for the past uh, couple of well, well, I was going to say couple so, of weeks, but raging on for the past pretty much since the beginning of time, I think. But there's <laughs> been some horrific scenes and horrific stories coming out of yeah. uh, uh, coming from over there, and it has been. Well, I think it's been quite difficult to watch, Chris. But I know for a fact when I was reading some of the stories about, you know, the rocket blast going off and, and killing the families in, in Palestine, I'm obviously 
violence in any way where people are dying is never good. Um, but I mean, some of the stories were absolutely shocking. Um, I read one the other day, and I don't know, I can't say obviously how true it is. I didn't look into it, but I assume it came from a reasonably reliable source because I saw it on quite a major news out there. Um, and it was talking about how a Palestinian mother took all of her children into one room um, when the rocket bus was going off, so they would all die or make sure they all died if they died together, um, which is, for me, shocking to to hear. Um, you know, and some of the stories that have come out have just been terrible. But, Chris, I don't know, you've been quite vocal on this um, the last, well, last few days. I mean, when am I not vocal that. on things? Well, exactly. But you, you haven't mixed opinions between between this, Chris. So tell us how you're feeling um, about this at the moment. Well, I think firstly, yeah, I think I just want to echo it's just been obscene, this, the, the level of destruction and death we've seen, particularly the fact that the death toll um, of children is so high. Um, and yeah, we do have to acknowledge, and I don't want to go over the fact there have been deaths on both sides of the border in in the form of Palestinian civilians and Israeli civilians but you know we have to also acknowledge the death toll has been uh, far greater on the Palestinian side it's it's such a I think more than any uh, sort of global conflict this is the one that is so difficult because it's so embedded in history, in culture, in religion. Um, I mean, I mean, if we're going to talk about the wider thing, there's so much you need to understand uh, as as somebody commenting on it and sort of um, assessing it. It's such a complex picture. I think what the recent sort of swelling in the conflict is obviously come from the sort of ever. I mean, it's difficult because. The current Israeli regime has acted acted appallingly in this sort of constant desire to sort of ever expand their territory at the expense of the Palestinians uh, is obscene. I mean, it's against, you know, pretty much every convention going. Um, you know, it is apartheid as far as I can tell. It is, you know, effectively two prison cells on the Levant in, in, in the West Bank and in, in Gaza. Um, where Palestinians are penned in by Israeli forces. Um, but then we also get to the point now where as much as, you know, Israel um, willfully bombing Palestinian civilians is disgusting, you know, we also have to talk about the fact that Hamas, which are who are the de facto uh, leaders of Palestine and a terrorist organisation, effectively send Palestinian civilians out to slaughter for political aims. And it is such a complex issue because the leaders on both sides of this debate, and I'm not, again, I don't want to diminish the fact that there is obviously an oppressor and an oppressed in this particular situation because of the power imbalance between Israel and Palestine. The two leaders of both sides completely, continue to completely act in a disgraceful way, which exacerbates and promotes the loss of civilian life. And I think until both the current Israeli regime and Hamas are toppled, then this is just going to keep going on and on and on. Yeah, so just going back to the death toll, uh, so it's at least 230 Palestinians who have been killed, which is uh, coming from Gaza health officials, and there's apparently 12 
in Israel, but that's probably rising and going to grow. Um, and there has now, as, at the time of filming, this is pretty recent um, coming out, that there has been a ceasefire um, announced between Israel and Hamas. Uh, well, it was 11 consecutive days of violence, I think it was here, but this is, as you say, has been going on for a long, long time. Um, Egypt are alleged to have helped broker a truce between the both sides, and apparently uh, the truce is mutual and unconditional. I don't know how much to read into that, but there we go. Um, it just, it's just a, it's such a difficult situation, I think. It's just, and I don't want to taint everyone with the same brush, I think, I think is important here, because there are people who are innocent people who are being killed for political gain, as you've said, um, and it's just an awful situation. But how, how, do, how does this, how is this solved? Um, a truce is not going to heal years of hurt. It's not going to bring back the people who've died, who've been killed, not just now, um, but all in the past. I mean, you've talked about toppling the regimes, but how realistic is that? And how, how, how do, how do international powers, what do they need to do? What, how do they get involved in this without well, well, making it worse, really. Well, this, this is the problem. I think from an outside perspective, you'd assume, well, if you look at the current Israeli regime, it's easy to topple because it's a democracy. Mm. Um, so clearly, you know, there is there are means and ways of doing that. Hamas, they have such a grip on, on Palestine. And let's not forget, they are a designated terror organisation uh, who routinely uh, murder LGBT plus people whose uh, charter calls for the complete eradication of Jewish people from the Levant. So these aren't people to be reasoned with. <laughs> um, why the other countries don't get in, well, the other countries aren't more involved in terms of brokering peace is, for me, from my perspective, fairly simple, is that Israel is an ally in the Middle East for the West, uh, particularly where there is obviously large interest in terms of geopolitical stability and oil. Um, so it's almost they, they don't want to be seen to sort of be playing, playing both sides. They want Israel to win um, because it, it suits it suits the United States. It suits, well, to some extent, lesser extent, obviously, uh, the EU and, and, and the UK. Um, so, you know, it's difficult to find somebody who's objectively interested in brokering peace at, at a national level. I think that is one of the big struggles, is that there are vested interests even in the West here. So as much as it's a cultural issue and a historical tension in the Middle East, outside of it, it's an economic one and a geopolitical one. And um, all of those things prevent that, I think, from being sorted. And this is the problem. I mean, we'll see these, I think, like I said, this unconditional ceasefire, great for now, but like you said, thousands and thousands and thousands of people have died owing to this conflict and thousands more will die because this won't be the last time the tensions flare up and it won't be the last time that violence is used as a response to that. Um, I don't know. I don't know. If, do, you, do you have any particular... Well, I, I, wisdom to I'm share not, with this? <laughs> I mean, I don't know the solution to world peace, but I mean, I just need to read a couple of stats out from what was what has been happening over there uh 16,800 housing units have been damaged in gaza um 
around about just under 2,000 are unfit to live in. Uh, and a thousand of those have been dis uh, been completely destroyed. So you can imagine the destruction to people's lives. Uh, Israeli attacks have actually damaged at least 18 hospitals and clinics as well. And one health facility has been completely destroyed. Uh, nearly half of all essential... Can you repeat that last one again about the health facilities? Yeah. Uh, so there's been... Well, the attacks on the uh, in, from Israeli forces have damaged at least 18 hospitals and clinics. Uh, so that is actually, and I think this is important to point out, it breaks uh, the Geneva Convention on, 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 on what's acceptable to warfare to attack uh, health provision. So it's important to point that out. <laughs> yeah, that is a war crime. Yeah, so we should also just point out that one health facility has been completely destroyed um, and nearly half of all essential drugs have also run out um, as a result of that. Uh 50 schools have been damaged uh, and at least six have been destroyed and that will disrupt the education of almost 42,000 children uh, whilst repairs take place. So looking at the action from some of the people around the world, uh, our own country, Chris, UK has pledged £3.2 million in aid uh, for civilians in Gaza. I mean, it might fix a few buildings, but it's not going to fix the families, is it? I mean, I know there's casualties on both sides, and I think we should be clear um, that, you know, people have died on both sides. But like I said, there's some of those stories about the, the families dying in their homes together whilst rockets blast down in their houses. I mean, you can't you can't fix that, can you? No. And, uh, so, no, yeah, no amount of money, obviously, is ever going to fix that. And like I say, it is, you know, it doesn't matter what money the government or any government pledges towards the people of Gaza or well, anywhere in in that region it is it's a plaster isn't it because like we we both agreed it's just gonna it's just gonna happen again it is just gonna keep happening and I think it's just exceptionally worrying isn't it I just don't see I mean I think naively when I first got involved in politics and started you know becoming aware of, of geopolitical issues like this particularly with Israel and Palestine, you sort of, I read about it and I learnt about it and I was just so wedded to the idea of a two-state solution. And it just seems that although I think that is, I still believe that's the best solution, it's just, it feels impossible. It just feels absolutely impossible. It just feels like nobody's going to be happy until the other one's completely destroyed. Hmm. It does, it does feel very much like that. And it just seems like they will do whatever they can to eradicate the other and it just it almost i mean it's like it's like trying to put, I, I don't even know so if it seems to me like a bit like a wildfire really like you put one bit out and then you realize that there's fire burning on the other side of the field really um and the irony of this all is i'm not very good with uh the name of the israeli prime minister but the prime minister has actually uh the conflict has actually strengthened his position uh allegedly uh, which which says a lot, really. Um, but it's just it's a shocking, shocking. It's just awful. I feel I don't want to say it, it seems like pity um, on these people, but it's just a horrendous situation that they've just been caught in the middle of. I think, and I mean that with Hamas obviously using civilians pretty much as human shields. Um, it's just it's it's awful, and I almost can't find the words to describe. Um, what we've seen for the past, well, I mean, it's only really been highlighted for the past 11 days. I know it's been in the news before, but it's not really 
um, talked about. And it's all, it's sad really that it's all sort of caused by religion and different beliefs. And yeah, you would have yeah. thought we've made past that really now. And it's, it's a shocking, shocking really. And I think that's probably another aspect of this. It, it, it has brought a really ugly thing out in this country. I'm sure in other Western countries, this swell of anti-Semitism we've seen. I mean, we've seen the stories over the over the last week or so of people who claim to be supporting Palestine. They're not. They are just racists driving down to traditionally Jewish areas of London and calling for the rape of Jewish daughters. I mean... Fla- I mean, flagrant acts of racism like that on 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 the streets in Britain is just something you don't expect to see in 2021. And it there is a worrying fusion, um, and it does yeah, worrying fusion of of this blurred distinction between criticizing Israel as a state uh, and as a current regime and criticizing and attacking Jewish people as if they're one in the same thing, which they are obviously not. Um, and yeah, and unfortunately, you know, we've had we've seen this in this country over the last few years in terms of the sort of crisis we've seen within the Labour Party in terms of the anti-Semitism that's, that's uh, been uncovered there. And I, I, I do, I mean, from a personal perspective, I don't want to be too controversial. I do hold the former leader of the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, massively responsible for the swell of anti-Semitism we've seen in this country. Um, um, and it, I think that's something we need to be wary of. And I think it's... Um, really troubling to see that lots of people are what's the word they are appropriating the very worthy cause of standing with palestine uh for racist means and for oppressing jewish people and 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 yeah and that's really worrying yeah it's just it's not it's not good at all um and i don't even think it's worth asking people for views on it because it's just a horrendous situation that's left well left i mean I, I, in this situation it's left over 200 people dead but longer term you know we're talking thousands um over the years and it's just i'm <laughs> I, i'm shocked that there isn't more being done about it to be honest um it's it's a terrible terribly sad time really for them and just in general especially when you look at the vac the not vaccine the virus ravaging the world and well, Israel have managed to jab pretty much everyone over there, haven't they? I think they're pretty much like normal. They were doing very well, but then <laughs> they were withholding jabs from Gaza. So. Exactly. So I mean, it's another one. Just I mean, it's almost like they don't see them at the other side as as people. Really, it's just shocking. I couldn't I couldn't imagine a living in that sort of situation and and b just generally fearing for my life. Wondering when the rocket's going to come and hit my house. There, to be honest, but I don't know. I don't know how this gets better. I don't know how this is solved. And you know, we've we've gone through the deep, the numbers um, and everything, and it's it just makes for for sorry reading, really. Perfect when we're filming this on a Friday night. <laughs> what a way yeah. to end the week. Very <laughs> to end the working week for us. <laughs> um. I mean, probably just something on a lot, um, just to finish up on, on a slightly lighter note, Chris, uh, for you this week. Um, Wes Morgan came out this week that he was retiring um, from Leicester. And I just wanted to ask you how you were feeling about that, really. I mean, to be honest, we've seen it coming. <laughs> um, 
he obviously thirty seven. He's his back is in tatters. I was surprised actually he was on. He managed to get on the pitch for the FA Cup final. Although I'm really pleased he did get that opportunity and was there to lift the trophy with Schmeichel. Um, yeah, obviously it's just. I mean, man, crazy because you you look at somebody like Steve Walsh and you think he is sort of you don't see he played for Leicester City for 15 years. Steve Walsh when it was obviously one of our most famous captains, and you don't see that ever being eclipsed. Whereas Wes Morgan, who came from a small club uh, just north of Leicester, I can't, their name escapes me. Um, <laughs> oh, um, not Notts Forest. Um, so he came down from them. Um, and, you know, he, he went on to play for us for nearly 10 years. He won the Premier League with Leicester City as captain. Won the FA Cup with Leicester City as captain and played in the quarterfinals and scored in the quarterfinals of the Champions League with Leicester City as captain. Don't forget to point out his uh, numerous caps for Jamaica as well. I think that's an important achievement. Jamaican legend. Uh, yes, well, he'll be a big miss, I think, around the, the Leicester ground money, but surely there's a role for him at the club, is there? I don't know what the. Well, I think he'll be involved in some capacity. Heading legend, the statue. So he's always at Philbert Way. Another, um, another departure from Leicester as well that was announced. Was it today or yesterday? I can't remember. I have one of his t-shirts actually. Funny enough, Christian <laughs> Fuchs. Uh, I don't. Is he retiring or is he just leaving? I can't I make. Think, it. You know what? It's almost been like a running gag because Christian Fuchs is meant to be leaving us at the end of every season for the last four or five seasons because apparently he's wanted to go. His wife lives in America with his kids. So he's been playing for us for like the last five years while his wife and kids have been living in New York. So he flies out between in like international breaks and, and lives with them. Um, so I think his his um, his dream was to go and be a kicker in the NFL. Um, I, I don't know if that's what he's doing, but that was what we were always told: is he he'd be leaving almost at the end of every season to go and do that, um, and then almost like clockwork, it'd be oh. He's going to stick around for another year. Like, okay. But apparently this time, <laughs> it's it's, he's, he's had enough this time. So, yeah, I think he's another that will go down in uh, Leicester City folklore, obviously, for his role in the title winning season. And you're uh, doing your typical Leicester thing towards the end of the season, which is very similar to what you did last year, Chris. I mean, I can't really say anything because Arsenal are currently battling for a place in the Europa Conference League. Um but it's not looking too good for you coming into the final day of the season, uh, I have to say. With Liverpool's go, who've Liverpool got last game of the season? Crystal Palace. Crystal Palace, who literally can't win a game to save their lives. They might well get a performance in for for Boy. I don't know. We'll see. This is his last game. You never. Know. And Palace. I have a feeling. I don't know if mer- my memory is correct, but I have a feeling Palace do quite well at Anfield. They do. You're right. Yeah, they seem to win quite often at Anfield. So who knows? You keep I'd, be eyeing up, I'd be eyeing up the Chelsea score more so, though, because I, I think there's more chance of Chelsea dropping points at Aston Villa. Um, and how do you feel about being Harry Kane's final victims before he leaves? Well, he always scores against us anyway, so <laughs> as long as we score four goals and you know his customary hat-trick shouldn't be too much of a problem. So, <laughs> Well, with Tottenham's defence and Reguilion sticking the ball in his own net. Great finish, oh, wasn't it, against Aston Villa? Oh, what, what a goal. goal. What a goal. But would uh, would 
would Champions League? So, well, let me just ask you in worst case scenario. So, worst case scenario, you finish outside the top four, you get European football next season, and you win the FA Cup. That's not a bad season for Leicester, is it? No, no. Well, no, not at all. It's a brilliant season. If you look at it in the perspective of, of what I've known as Leicester City for the entire time, I've been a supporter. Um, obviously, it'd be massively dis- disappointed to drop out the top four again, but having won the FA Cup last weekend, I'm feeling much more relaxed about the prospect now because. We won the FA Cup, <laughs> so um, you know the Champions League now is is the bonus. It's not the other way around. Um, obviously, I want to finish in the top four, but if we don't, I'm feeling quite relaxed about it. And to be honest, the fact that we won the FA Cup and we are going to finish in the top five for two seasons running, it gives me confidence that you know we will challenge for these places again next season. So you know we'll just have to try again if we got, can't make it this year. And, and to be honest. You know, it's been a tough season, like no fans. You know, the injuries we've had, I know Liverpool are the only club that are allowed to complain about injuries, but you know, we've had some substantial injuries this season. And we don't have we don't have the money and the finances to have the squad depth that the the Super League clubs and I did roll my eyes there for the benefit of the tape, uh, <laughs> have. Um so yeah, I I'm pretty pleased. what about you? How are you feeling about oh, your I relentless am- pursuit of eighth or ninth or where the hell you are honestly the last few weeks i have actually not been watching the game well hold on a minute actually there is something that could go wrong you can still finish below the mighty Leeds united and i know that will go down well in your house well yeah i mean that is to be honest with you if they want to battle out for 10th place and they're more than welcome to battle with (laughs) us i really don't care but i i would prefer to avoid missing out on the Europa Conference League. I do not want to be in that. I'd rather have no European football than than play in that. Um, do we deserve to play in Europe next year? No. Uh, after our performance against Villarreal a few weeks ago, do I think that we should be in Europe? Absolutely not. I mean, just what a disaster of a football club we are. Um, oh, but we've released a new kit, though, so everything's fine. Don't worry. It's, it's, a, tra- it's a great tra- kit. It's a great kit. I love it. This is the, the problem yellow. with Arsenal. I get fed up with them. They don't win any games. They can't play decent football on the pitch. And then they release a good kit. And I think, oh, oh, you've got them. And then I realise, no, this is the same shit club. I'm not having it. They do. You do have nice kits. So I mean, I do really like that. And I like the retro badge thing they've got going on. However, I have seen, uh, I don't know if they're confirmed, but I have seen pictures of the alleged new home kit. And I have to say, I am not impressed. It looks like a complete rip-off of Ajax's kit. Um, I look forward to seeing that then. Well, good one. So hopefully those designs are wrong and they're not accurate. I also heard, I don't know how reliable this is either, I did hear from word of mouth, that if we don't get into Europe, there will be no third kit released. So we probably won't be seeing uh, that. I mean, hopefully we don't get into the Conference League because I can't wait to be playing the Faroe Islands' finest (laughs) team on a Thursday night. (laughs) Um, I'm playing Sunday afternoons again but I suppose enough of me moaning really um, on that I just wanted to really flag as a final point how good it actually was to see fans back in the grounds um, over the weekend I don't did you make it to Wembley Chris I'm not sure if you were I didn't make it to Wembley but I am going back to the King Power Stadium on Sunday so superb to hear you know that'll be nice odd but nice Will there be a tear of joy shed? I mean, I literally, I saw it on and it was so nice and I thought they had crowd noise on at Burnley the other night and I don't tend to enjoy watching Burnley. 
but they were cheering, jeering the referee every time he gave him a decision. Right. Passing the ball around and playing like Brazil, obviously, under Sean Dutch. Um, and it's just, it makes such a it's difference. Sean Dutch. It really got a pound note here at Burnley Football Club. Can't <laughs> compete with the market leaders at Burnley Football Club. <laughs> anyway, yeah, no, it was nice to hear. Um, well, not nice to hear Sean Dyche, never is. Nice to hear the Burnley fans and all the other fans. I totally agree. Well, if you have gone to a game um, since you've been allowed to by government, um, please let us know. How did you feel? Were you wiping away the tears or did it all just feel like overpriced library like it is at the Emirates? Uh, not sure. We haven't played a game back there yet, so I, maybe I'm being a bit harsh. Maybe it'll get noisier now that there's been no one there for for a while. Not sure. I won't hold your breath. Yeah, I won't be. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Still, we could be cheering for 10th place. Who knows? Uh, Arsenal taking on Brighton at the weekend. Uh, Leicester have the mighty Spurs. Trophyless again this season, but they have gotten some nice key rings left over if anyone's interested for <laughs> Carabao Cup finalists. Uh, so make sure you head over to their website. They've got plenty left, I'm, I'm told, by a reliable sure There must be a fire sale on for those. Well, I'm pretty sure that Wish are looking for new things to put on their site. So if you're Daniel Levy, if you're listening, uh, there's, there's, there's a market still for them. And Jonathan Woodgate's looking for some new ones for his keys at Bournemouth as well. So. <laughs> Yeah, let let us uh, let us know if you have been back to the ground. I did did see a couple of people posting across social media. I was very jealous to see that they were at Wembley, um, and obviously it was it was really nice to see, without being biased, Chris. And I know I always go on about how great it is to see your club doing well when it's run properly, but it was really nice to see top. I think on the pitch with the FA Cup, and it was quite it was. Amazing, quite moving actually. I thought. Yeah, it's nice to see owners, particularly after the whole Super League uh, fiasco, to see an owner, and it's, I'm privileged that it's the owner of my football club, uh, appear so emotional and so invested and so welcomed by everyone else at the club. And I don't think you see that very often, so it's definitely heartening yeah, uh, to see that. that. Very nice. Not stood up in the corporate box like old Cronky, who only turns yeah. up on Cup Final Day. Cronky, if you're listening, uh, please sell up, get out. Still, no opinion has changed. We don't care who you buy. Get out of the club. Uh, just as a closing remark there, but we have come to the end of another episode, Chris. Uh, we will be back again with episode seven. God uh, knows when. I want, to say, I want to say next week, but we shall see on that. I'm not sure what the schedules are looking like. We do have very busy lives now. You know, We are in demand, hosting things all over the world. Uh, For the benefit of the tape, I'm rolling my eyes again. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. Uh, but no, thanks for tuning in again and listening to this. Uh, we, I keep saying it every week, but we will be investing in mics soon, hopefully. Um, so the sound should get better. I don't know what it's going to be like on this one. Uh, we have ch- taken on a new recording method uh, for this. So we'll see if that makes a difference to anything. I mean, we've had numerous mm. technical difficulties throughout. Um, but yeah, thanks for sticking with us and listening to this. And hopefully see you again for the next one. Take care, everyone. Bye.